ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. If you're not already, please become a subscriber at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or elsewhere. And please also leave us a nice review if you would. This week, learning the lessons of COVID. It's now two and a half years since the onset of the pandemic. And the more we learn, the more we can see that our public health response was deeply flawed. Decisions by state and local governments to impose lockdowns did huge damage to our economy, the consequences of which we're still seeing today. Closure of schools has had catastrophic effects on children's education and psychological well-being with test scores way down and incidents of mental illness way up. Doctor and hospital visits were postponed for many months, leading to late diagnoses of serious illness that might well have been prevented if earlier action had been taken. And yet, with another winter approaching, some parts of the country, some authorities seem eager to do it all again, with some states warning that they're ready to impose new mandates in the event of an increase in cases. Well, to talk about all this, I'm joined, I'm delighted to say, by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya is Professor of Health Policy at Stanford University and the Director of the Center on the Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. He's also a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research. Dr. Bhattacharya was an early critic of lockdowns, certainly the extreme lockdowns that we faced, and was widely lambasted by public officials and indeed fellow academics. Yet much of what he has said then and has said throughout the pandemic has proven to be true. And I'm delighted to say that he joins me now, Dr. Bhattacharya. Thank you very much indeed for being here. Thank you, Jerry. It's just a real honor to talk to you. No, thank you. So let's start, if I may, with, I'm going to take a sort of slightly contrarian position. Is it not the case that lockdowns at least saved perhaps many millions of lives? I don't think it saved many millions of lives. I think what lockdowns did, Jerry, is that is for a certain class of people, in particular people who could afford to work from home without losing their job, without losing their livelihood, those people, I think lockdowns protected for a short time. It moved the incidence of cases forward from, you know, March of 2020 to forward to maybe six months, a year, that is the extent to which I think lockdowns actually protected anybody. That's only 20 or 30% of the population. For the rest of the population, I don't think lockdowns did much. And when you look at real world evidence, comparing countries that locked down and didn't, it's really hard to find evidence that it really saved lives. Let's talk about the evidence because you've done a lot of research on this. It was remarkable, actually. It was almost like a sort of a perfect kind of experiment. And then we had countries and jurisdictions doing different things. You had extreme lockdowns in places like Australia, where they literally kind of locked down the country. And then you had some countries, perhaps most notable that we all know about is Sweden, which didn't really pursue mandatory lockdowns. They did a more targeted approach and had interesting outcomes. Give us your reading of the data and what kind of a relationship there was between policies pursued and outcomes. The lockdowns themselves really did not have a big effect. And Sweden's a fantastic example. Sweden has negative excess deaths throughout the entire pandemic. Let me say that again, negative excess deaths. What that means is that they've had fewer deaths than you would have expected them to have given their population age and structure than they had during 2015 to 2019. That's remarkable for a country that, for the most part, had limited interventions, certainly no mandatory closures, open schools, and they've made mistakes early in the pandemic. They actually didn't protect their elderly population very well early in the pandemic, but despite that, had pretty good outcomes. And Sweden's not the only place. For instance, if you consider Florida, they still had some closures of schools early in the pandemic, but still mostly followed a more focused protection kind of approach. You compare that against California. It looks almost identical, the results. 
in terms of COVID, but in terms of education for kids, closed uh, open businesses, unemployment through the pandemic, it's been much, much better. I don't think the real world evidence favors lockdowns. On the other hand, I think vaccines and particular vaccinating older people has been a quite effective tool in protecting people from the worst of the from the virus. I want to come on and talk about vaccines and other things too, but let's stick with lockdowns for the moment. So again, you go so far as to say the evidence is that certainly sort of mandatory nationwide, statewide, jurisdiction-wide, whatever you like to say, lockdowns where people stay in their homes, they don't go to work, they only go outside for limited periods of time, schools are closed. You just think the evidence is that those were not really, in the end, any more successful in curbing the spread of COVID and certainly were not any more successful in terms of the outcomes, in terms of mortality and serious illness and things like that, than places which actually said, no, we're going to keep everything open and you know maybe have some targeted approach, as certainly Sweden and other countries did, but we're actually going to basically keep functioning. There was no real difference in the outcomes. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct, Jerry. One way to think about this is looking at the most extremely successful lockdown case. So for instance, New Zealand is a good example of this, right? New Zealand successfully locked down and kept COVID out of the country for full, almost two years, year and a half, two years. They had to lock down repeatedly. Whenever there was a case or two, they would lock down Adelaide or larger regions. And there was no COVID through most of those years. When they finally reopened and vaccinated, once the population was vaccinated, which took way too long, the number of cases exploded. And now they've had more cases per capita than the United States. The lockdown in Sweden, the most successful lockdown in the world, all it did is push cases off into the future. In New Zealand, sorry, in New Zealand, you mean? New, I'm sorry, yes, yes, yeah, New Zealand. Well, actually, the same is true in Australia, too. Uh, uh, but very similar kind of story there. But it was never a good plan to think, okay, we're going to be able to push cases off into the future forever, that we could somehow get rid of this disease. That was the implicit promise of the lockdowns. From the very beginning, not true. There was never a time from March 2020 on, maybe even February or January 2020 on, where a lockdown-focused strategy was going to get rid of this disease. Was the relative success of Sweden a test to what was widely derided at the time as the herd immunity approach, which is, you know, you're going to have to deal with this one way or another. You let it, sorry to put it in these terms, but you sort of let it rip through the community. The community builds up immunity, and that is a more effective way of doing it. Or is there something else going on? I mean, what explains why a country that basically didn't lock down in the face of this you know, quite virulent pandemic, what could explain why they ended up with a better outcome than a country like New Zealand, which went into total lockdown? I think the key thing is that the lockdowns themselves induce all kinds of harm independent of the effect they have on COVID. Lockdowns themselves induce deep anxiety and a whole variety of things. Unemployment that it induces causes health harms. Closure of schools causes harms. The delay of basic healthcare services causes harm. All of these things, I think, multiply together to essentially, if you think about health as more than just avoidance of COVID, you can understand why lockdowns are going to ultimately not have such an important effect. It's not like Sweden did nothing. It, they still had advisement about uh, mass gatherings. Uh, they told and gave resources to older people so they could be protected, you know, protect themselves. They organized communities to deliver groceries to older people. I mean, they did all kinds of things especially after spring of 2020, when there was an enormous problem in nursing homes that they had to protect nursing homes. So I think it's not that they did nothing. It's that they relied on the population to take sensible precautions rather than these sort of top-down lockdowns that people really couldn't abide by and that resulted in harm directly rather than trusting people to make good decisions once you've told them what the high-risk situations were. I think that's why Sweden did better. It's not that they did nothing. 
they didn't, it's not that they let it rip. When you allow society to continue functioning to the best it can, the virus is going to spread. But the virus spreads even with the lockdowns, that only maybe 20, 30% of the American population had jobs that could work from home. No matter what you do, the virus is going to spread. It's uh, Martin, My colleague, Martin Kulov, has a fantastic analogy. He says, look, uh, if you think about what the end of the pandemic is, it's going to be herd immunity. A sufficient fraction of the population has immunity through either infection or through vaccines. Like If you think about an airplane, there's gravity, right? But no one thinks about a gravity strategy to land an airplane. That's insane. Gravity is going to pull your airplane down eventually, no matter what you do. The only question is, how do you land the plane as safe as possible? That same is true with pandemic management. Eventually, for a virus like this, there is herd immunity. Uh, the form of it is not prevention of infection permanently. The form of it is protection against severe disease by, by dint of prior infection. So how do you protect older people who are really at high risk for a while until there's better treatments, better vaccines, and so on. That's the question we should have been asking through the pandemic. One argument for lockdowns, though, very early on, I live in New York. I was here in New York throughout the COVID pandemic. One argument early on was that it was necessary that even if you buy the idea that ultimately, you know, everybody's going to get this, thing, almost you know, you're going to have to work your way eventually to widespread community immunity. One argument was that we had to famously flatten the curve in order to limit the risk that our healthcare facilities would be overwhelmed. And in fact, there was some evidence in New York, which was worst hit, as you recall very well in the early stages of the pandemic, that actually with the surge in COVID cases that we had in that first March and April of 2020, there were hospitals that came very, very close, at least, and in some cases actually were essentially overwhelmed. Is that not a powerful argument that you want to spread out the number of cases that you get so that your health facilities are not swamped? I think for a very short time, that may be an argument. You know, even in New York, Jerry, what happened was there were spare capacity built. There was like that overflow center and the Javits Center, overflow hospitals, it was the Mercy Ship, both of which went really underused. And I think the right approach to that kind of crisis is to build spare capacity. You can do lockdowns, but really it should be focused on protection of people who are really at high risk, right? So for instance, in New York, why did they have so many cases right then? It's because they forgot about focus protection. They sent COVID-infected patients to nursing homes out of hospitals, thereby creating a tremendous number of COVID-infected patients who are more likely to end up in hospitals. The right tool isn't these blunt lockdowns. The right tool is understanding the epidemiology of the disease, who's really at risk, who's really at risk of being hospitalized, building spare capacity to the extent you can, and then reducing the risk for those high-risk people, focus protection. That's the right way to deal with the pandemic. New York is a case study of what not to do. They forgot about who was at high risk and thereby increased the hospitalization numbers. Actually, they concentrated the spread rather than spread the disease out. I was going to say it's actually worse. They didn't just forget. They actually sent sick people from hospitals into nursing homes and resulted in many, many unnecessary deaths very tragically. But one of the things you spotted very early on, I think, and one of the reasons I think that you quite quickly diverged, you and other folks who were paying the Great Barrington Declaration, which I remember you wrote later that year. One of the reasons you diverged was I think you very quickly spotted that the lethality of COVID was nothing like as great as it was being predicted and actually being said in the early stages that the infection fatality rate was actually much lower. We were hearing from official organizations like the World Health Organization and the CDC that this could have an infection fatality rate of what, three, four percent. Give us a sense of what actually how lethal COVID was compared with other epidemics, pandemics with regular flu, things like that. I mean, how much of this was caused by an overreaction based on an overestimation of the actual threat that it posed? I think that was a big part of it, Jerry. So uh, 
Early on in the pandemic, I did a study of antibodies in the population in Santa Clara County and Los Angeles County, California. And what we found was that there were 50 times more infections than cases. And in fact, in the community at large, the infection fatality was something like 0.2%. I mean, that's bad. That's worse than, like, I think it's like probably five, 10 times worse than the flu as a baseline matter. So it's a bad thing. But it's not Ebola. It's not smallpox. Smallpox has infection fatality rate north of 30, 40%. So what you have is a disease that's a very, very bad disease for a certain population. If you're older, let's say you're over the age of 70 or 80, the infection fatality rate is 5, 10%. It's very, very high. For children, it's less than the flu as a typical matter. It also varies to some extent by your chronic conditions, but really the most important factor is age. And so the right thing to do in light of that evidence, which by the way, that evidence has been replicated over and over and over again. You know, hundreds of these seroprevalence studies basically finds the same thing. Very highly infectious disease, really deadly for old people, not so deadly for young people. The right thing to do is let's protect the people that are really vulnerable. That seems like the obvious choice. And the reason it's obvious is also, it, there's also evidence behind it. It's the same strategy we've used to manage respiratory viral pandemics for a century. Identify the vulnerable people provide resources and protection for them as best you can, with, given the technology you have, work to develop better technologies until such time as herd immunity is established in the population. Do we have any evidence yet, Jay, what negative effects lockdowns did have in terms of healthcare outcomes? We know, obviously, as I said at the beginning, we're continuing to experience the economic effect that it had, the disruption to supply chains and all of that that has led to you know significant price pressures, inflation, all the other economic dislocations that have occurred. Are there any data yet? Is there any hard evidence on things like what we know we've seen it impacts terrible, terrible test scores, right, for kids? We're seeing the negative effect of that and the, the long-term damage from that. Large instances, I think, of cases of mental illness, particularly in kids, huge increases probably caused by being locked away from their friends and stuck at home and looking at screens all day. This issue of medical diagnoses, consultations, procedures being put off because either because hospitals and doctors just couldn't accept patients or because patients were scared to do it and the long-term impact of that in terms of undiagnosed cancers and undiagnosed chronic disease. Again, we can all picture that quite well. Is there any hard evidence yet on just how damaging the lockdowns were in terms of all those social outcomes? All that you said is absolutely true and much more. It's hard because there's so many facets to this. There's so many dimensions to this. The lockdowns essentially ceased the basic functions of society for a while and then hindered it for even longer than that by spreading fear about COVID and other things. And so I think the thing about the lockdowns is, just take one thing, but we have an inflation going on now, Jerry, that is almost certainly the consequence of the stimulus bills that we used during the lockdown to make sure that businesses, people didn't starve. You print trillions of dollars and hand it to the regular popula population, it'll, it'll obviously circulate. It's going to cause inflation. That's exactly what's happened. But what you've outlined is rich countries. In poor countries, it's even worse. From early on in the pandemic, the UN and other organizations were warning that there was going to be 100 million people thrown into dire poverty, meaning $2 a day of income or less. That is exactly what's happened. The tens of millions of people thrown into dire poverty, tens of millions of people in poor countries thrown into dire food insecurity, meaning that they don't know where they're going to get their next meal. The UN estimated in March 2021 that already 230,000 children had died of starvation as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdowns. When we globalized over the last 40 years, a billion people worldwide were lifted out of dire poverty. How? Because a lot of poor countries reorganized their economies to fit into the global economy. You cut those ties overnight, it's going to cause damage. 
to the poorest people in the world. And that's precisely what's happened. And health consequences, they play themselves out over decades. So for instance, children, you mentioned that there's this drop in test scores, but it's not just that the test scores are worse. Like the social science evidence suggests that even short interruptions in children's schooling, a few months, can result in a lifetime of worse health, higher likelihood of poverty and unemployment, and shorter lives. But there was one estimate that suggested just the spring lockdowns alone will result in the United States in five and a half million shorter life years for our children, just from the spring school closures. It was an incredibly short-sighted policy. I think of it as generational theft. It's really the young that have suffered the most, young and poor. Why did we do this, Jay? Again, the evidence is mounting now so strongly. The lockdowns were excessive. All the things you've talked about, the comparisons between different countries, the implications we're seeing in terms of other negative outcomes of lockdowns. And yet we did this. Governments around the world, almost all of them, with very few exceptions, Sweden, went into this. Governments in this country, particularly, I think, you know, let's be honest, it was sort of left of center governments, sort of more progressive states and cities were very eager to do this. Was it simply because of an overreaction, a miscalculation? in terms of the lethality of this, as we just discussed? Or what was going on? Why did we end up going in this direction? Part of it is the Chinese example in early 2020 looked successful. The Chinese example looked successful. So the World Health Organization sent a mission to China in January 2020 that came back saying, look, they locked down and they got rid of the disease. And then people were looking at Italy and seeing collapsing healthcare systems. Their healthcare system really did collapse. You had these coffins lined up in cathedrals. It just looked like a horrible world-ending kind of disease about to spread. And public health systems, public health officials basically panicked. And with the exception of Sweden, it got rid of their old plans and decided lockdown was the only way. And once they had put themselves into that kind of idea, they essentially convinced the population that this was airborne Ebola. It was really hard to turn it around. Once you rung the bell of panic through the population, it's really hard to unring. Still, two and a half years later, we're paying the price of that. And I think that, that it's kind of a, it's this combination of the apparent early success of China combined with this hysteresis in policymaking that explains what happened. And, you know, while we're talking about the policy response, the other thing that was very striking, and you, I know, very much were at the center of this, it wasn't simply that, you know, this policy, what we can now call in many respects policy mistake was pursued, but it, anybody who criticized it, anybody who raised all of these valid objections that you raised at the time and that have subsequently been vindicated, I think it's not unfair to say was sort of demonized and was treated as callous or reckless with public health. People were told, no, this was outrageous. There were famously, you know, attempts to sort of silence people who raised doubts about lockdown. That was a part of a broader phenomenon, unfortunately, that we have in society right now where there seems to be a reluctance to tolerate, you know, alternative views. Tell me a bit about that. I remember when the Great Barrington Declaration, which again, which you signed, came out. I remember the attempt by a lot of people to discredit that in the media, government officials trying to discredit it. That's a pretty extraordinary thing to do in the interest of public health, isn't it? By October 2020, when we wrote the declaration, a lot of scientists were having deep doubts about lockdowns, worse than deep doubts. A lot of scientists and epidemiologists had already become convinced that the lockdowns were a, a tremendous mistake. So when I wrote it, that declaration with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University and Harvard, and then um, Martin Kulda from Harvard University, it created this firestorm. Like basically, within four days after we'd written it, 10,000 doctors and Scientists had signed it, 100,000 regular people had signed it. That created an enormous problem for public health bureaucrats, people like Tony Fauci, people like Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institute of Health, because it was clear that lockdowns weren't a consensus position. In fact, there was actual legitimate opposition within the scientific community. 
you can't implement a strategy like a lockdown with a you know an all of society approach that disrupts the lives of so many people unless you have a true scientific consensus. It's a moral basis for that. If there's really legitimate scientific controversy, well, you have to account for that. So they had two choices. They could have engaged with us, engaged with people who dissented, and tried to modify the policy in light of what scientific evidence was saying, or they could have demonized us and tried to destroy us, make it look like we were fringe. They unfortunately chose the latter. But you know, Francis Collins wrote to Tony Fauci four days after we wrote the Great Branch Declaration, calling me, Martin Pulver, from Sinatra Group, the fringe epidemiologist, and then calling for a devastating published takedown. I started getting calls from the press asking me why I want to kill people, more or less. This is not the strategy that a bit of people that are confident in their ideas does when they are faced with opposition. People confident in their ideas engage with the opposition and attempt to reason and convince, persuade. Instead, they wanted to create this illusion of consensus in the public and they mounted a propaganda campaign to keep their lockdowns going. And unfortunately, Jerry, they won. And they got their lockdowns that continued long into 2021, all the restrictions long into 2021. And they're still ongoing. So it's really, for me, a disheartening story to see. My view of what science was before the pandemic is very different than what it is now. We've got to take a short break there. But when we come back, we'll have more with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University on the damage that our policymakers did in their response to the COVID pandemic. Stay with us. So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right! Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. I'm back with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University talking about the lessons that we've learned from the mistakes that were made dealing with the COVID pandemic. Two quick, brief specifics which I want to ask you about, face masks and vaccines. So face masks, again, this became a sort of a sacral act to wear a face mask considered absolutely essential. And you see many, many people wearing face masks. What's the evidence on face masks? Effective or not? I think largely ineffective. If you're trained and you're fit tested in hospital settings, it can be useful for short periods of time, a few hours. But at a population level, with people who are not trained to use them, using inadequate devices, you know, cloth masks, uh, surgical masks with gaps, N95s with gaps, moist N95s, dirty reused masks over and over again, there was no chance of it actually succeeding in slowing spread. And, you know, there was a dozen randomized studies from before the pandemic on the face masks and the flu, which found no evidence that it, at a population level, does anything. It may have even made things worse because older people went into public wearing a cloth mask thinking they were protected when they weren't. And they may have taken more risks than they ought to have during the height of the pandemic. And then, of course, as you said, it's created this sort of most like talismanic device at a partisan one at that. You can tell who's a Democrat or Republican. Public health should never divide. And the adoption of the face masks was guaranteed to divide. That's exactly what it did. And just on vaccines, really, now, vaccines were initially sold to us very strongly as they will immunize, they will protect us against contracting the virus. And that was the hope initially early on. It then became clear, actually, especially with these different variants of COVID-19, that actually meant those vaccines were not effective protection against contracting the virus. But I think the argument still was, that, and still is, I think the evidence, and you tell me, the evidence is still very strong that they're effective in protecting against serious disease. Were they oversold in the first place in that sense? Or was that just... You know, again, based on the trials, that's what was assumed. And then it was only when these additional variants came out that it became clear 
that not all these vaccines could protect against contraction of the virus itself? They were oversold even from the beginning, Jerry. So the trials did not show prevention of transmission. The trials were focused on prevention of symptomatic disease, but a lot of people get very few symptoms when they get infected. Asymptomatic spread does happen with this, actually fairly commonly. And there was no evidence from the trials that it prevented that. And in fact, it doesn't prevent that. And the trials lasted three months, but starting around four months after you're fully vaccinated, the efficacy against getting infected drops very sharply, infected at all. So very early on, March, April, May, June of 2021, very heavily vaccinated countries were experiencing huge spread of the disease. That was enough to tell everybody that, that this vaccine doesn't stop transmission, that we'd oversold it. I wrote a piece actually in the Wall Street Journal in December of 2020 calling for using the vaccine to protect the older population. It does protect against severe disease and death, especially against COVID death. And so that was the right way to use the vaccine. Vaccinate older people, especially, you can offer it to younger people if you need to, but you were never going to use the vaccine. There was no evidence even early on that you could use the vaccine to rid the virus, the population of the virus. This vaccine, unfortunately, doesn't do that. It does not have this infection blocking property. And then you had these vaccine passports and vaccine mandates as a way to try to get a large fraction of the population vaccinated on the theory that if they were, you'd have herd immunity, that by which they meant you'd stop the disease from spreading. You can't do that with a vaccine that doesn't stop the disease from spreading. It created tremendous social disruption on a goal that was never going to be achieved with this technology. On the vaccine mandates, and again, they're still in place. Official mandates are in place. The US has a kind of national mandate in place. If we just saw with Novak Djokovic being unable to come to the United States to take part in the US Open because he's not vaccinated. I mean, what do you make of these continuing mandates? Do you think they're a necessary public health measure or do they go too far? I think they've undermined confidence of people in vaccines. It's created a second-class citizenship for people who are not vaccinated. They can't fully participate in normal civic life. I mean, they've started to disappear. Remaining ones tend to be unvaccinated foreigners, can't come visit. That's why that joke that got tripped up. And the United States is looking increasingly out of step with much of the rest of the world. Like Europe, for instance, doesn't do that now. Yet an unvaccinated person can visit Europe with no restrictions. It makes no sense epidemiologically. The disease is everywhere. A travel restriction might make sense if you have one place that has disease, the other place doesn't have the disease, and then you can prevent the place that has disease from infecting the place that doesn't. Or you have a technology that stops disease spread, which the vaccine doesn't. But none of those conditions are in place. And so now you have these like restrictions that serve no purpose other than to undermine confidence in public health. What about adverse effects from the vaccines? There's been a lot of publicity given. There are some people, very prominent people, who've focused very hard on these. Have they been understated? Any reason we should be concerned about them? Well, so for young men especially, it is absolutely established that you have a fairly high rate of myocarditis from this vaccine. Myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle, which can be serious. And the rate could be one in a thousand, one in 2,000, one in 3,000. There's some controversy, but it's still way too common, especially given that the benefit for young men from the vaccine is actually relatively low because just by dint of being young, they are at very low risk of dying or hospitalization from COVID itself. It might be that you actually raise the risk of hospitalization by vaccinating young men because the myocarditis risk is high from the vaccine and not that high from COVID. So it should have been a individual choice. For older people, you have a high risk of death from COVID. The vaccine reduces that very substantially, a big benefit. You offset that against some possibility of harm. And I'd say you should vaccinate older people. I was really pleased my mom, 83 years old, got vaccinated. I think the um, there it's a new technology. We're learning a lot about what the side effects are. And, and you know it's typical for the new technologies to learn one, two, three, four, five years later what you know side effects actually were. 
And we did this at a population scale, which is why it's created such anxiety around the, the, the side effects. I think the wise way to use this vaccine would have been at, on an individual basis, net benefit for each person. Older people, it's a no-brainer. I would highly recommend taking the vaccine. Younger people, unless you have some underlying health condition that warrants it, you probably didn't need to recommend it at scale. Turning to the bigger picture again, Jay, you talked a little bit about the sort of politicization of science and the, what that has done to trust in science and to our public health leaders and public policy leaders. How much damage do you think has been done there? And what are the lasting effects of that? I mean, I think the confidence that many people have in science and the scientific process has been undermined in large part because, well, there's two overlapping things that have happened. One is our scientific leaders systematically undermine the basis by which science actually works, which is open discussion of ideas. They systematically worked to suppress scientific dissent. And many scientists, like me included, have felt the brunt of that. That undermines trust by scientists. It silences scientists. Many scientists stay quiet because they were afraid for their careers. How can you have science work when that's the case? And I think that also undermines public trust in science, looking at that. Uh, you have a public health bureaucracy that told social media what science was allowed to be discussed and what's not. How, in any moral sense, is that different from book banning? So there's the censorship in science that scientific bureaucrats systematically impose on the scientific community. And then on top of that, there's this other broader thing, which is, what is the right role of science in public policy and society generally? I mean, my general philosophy is that scientists should be on tap, not on top. The scientists have a narrow range of expertise, and at their range of expertise, they're quite good but they're quite bad generally at thinking more broadly about social trade-offs. So for instance, in the early in the pandemic, if you were not an epidemiologist or an immunologist or virologist, you weren't allowed to enter the discussion. Any economist that said, well, look, there's going to be a lot of unintended costs and those costs could end up having health harms. You were silenced because you're an economist. Our political leaders have a responsibility to understand broadly what a policy will do, not just narrowly on the scientific area of their scientific advisors telling them, but more broadly than that. So someone like Governor DeSantis of Florida looked at the policy and said, look, there's going to be more damage to uh, people who, for other health conditions, if I shut all these things down, that we're going to close the businesses and there's going to be unemployment. That'll have health consequences, economic consequences that are going to be really bad for people. If I close schools down, the kids are going to be harmed in ways they can't recover from. And so he made a, a reasoned decision based on the scientific evidence that he was seeing from his advisors versus the broader set of the public that he represents for the sort of the middle path that he took. I think that's the right way for leaders to think about scientists. We should be helping leaders decide. We shouldn't be taking the place of leaders in the decision-making process. Finally, Jay, there are going to be more pandemics. There are going to be more public health crises. What do we need to do urgently? to try to ensure that we don't make those same mistakes again? I think we need to hold a honest commission. The way I think about this is, you know, after a patient dies in medicine, in a hospital, you'd hold a meeting between the doctors and other caregivers for the patient to say, okay, what went wrong? It's called a morbidity and mortality conference, an M&M conference. The idea isn't to like point fingers. The idea is to really just honestly find out what went wrong and then build in place reforms and systems so that what went wrong doesn't happen again. We desperately need something like that, Jerry. We need a conversation, an honest one. And, you know, there will be people that will be blamed, but I don't think that should be the point of it. The point of it should be, here's the systematic failures that happened. Here's the consequences of them, which we need to look squarely in the eye, the negative consequences of people we've harmed and that are dead as a result of it. And then here's how we 
transform or reform our science bureaucracies, our political systems, so that we are resistant to this kind of like policy-making panic again in the future. And actually, if I had one wish, it would be that lockdown becomes a dirty word, that whenever someone mentions lockdown, people shudder in horror. <laughs> I think you may already have achieved that, Jay. Jay Bhattacharya, Stanford University, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for joining us. Do tune in again next week when we'll be taking another deep dive into one of the big issues driving our world. Thank you and goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.